Welcome back to the flip side, Galen, Clavio, Brian Moritz. We're back here. It's Friday. I'm once again outside, Brian, enjoying the birds and the lawnmowers that are in the neighborhood. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. As we were saying before we hit record, it's very nice when I got some when a neighbor is very regular in his lawn mowing or her lawn mowing. Don't want to be gender normative here. But yeah, second Friday in a row we've recorded and like clockwork, your neighbor is out getting his lawn in tip top shape. Suburbia is great like that. It really is. Uh, well, and, and all we're missing is the helicopter from last time. Well, that's and, right. I forgot about the, uh, the, uh, the drone, the drone situation of, uh, that, of June 20, the, remi- the other June, the other which, drone situation of June, which reminds me, it wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Iranian. That's for sure. But no, the, <laughs> it was actually a plane. Oh, okay. And it was flying a, a you know, one of those banners that you see towed behind planes mm-hmm. uh, advertising a big tent sale at the fairgrounds for one of the car dealers. Okay. And this brings up the first thing I wanted to chat about briefly on this podcast, which is, are you a subscriber to nextdoor.com? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I am. Uh, I am a big fan of checking in on Nextdoor. So there was a message on Nextdoor, which was... Uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and assume was from a person over the age of 50 who was bitterly complaining about the airplane flying overhead, towing some kind of message uh, and, and, and wanted to know what we could do about it because it was, <laughs> it was ruining uh, his otherwise quiet day. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we, to some degree, I'm actually surprised there hasn't been a deeper journalistic dive on the sorts of things that come out of nextdoor.com across the country. It's, it really is a fascinating and terrifying look into the people that we live next to. I agree with that. And, and, and it's funny. I've, I saw somewhere on Twitter, it might have been like a Neiman Lab link or something like that, but somebody bringing up Nextdoor and like the, this is like the social networker journalist, you know, like should be watching this or something like that. Um, I'm blanking on, on the specifics of it, but yeah, like I, I, I feel like Nextdoor is just starting to, to go a little bit mainstream in, in terms of media and journalists and people paying more attention to what's said there like it's not a critical mass yet. it's not a big thing but um but yeah so i'm on i'm on next door for my little suburban upstate neighborhood and it's it's you know it's not as how we say interesting as i think it is in like a college town or certainly a metropolitan area or a city neighborhood you know there's not much going on in parenting these days except for the road paving that drove me to the basement today but yeah. um but but yeah it it is kind of it it is very interesting to see like what are some of the things that you see in, 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 i'm fascinated to see what do you see in bloomington on your uh on your next door that stands out anything in particular it's mostly people asking for contractors or names of contractors and then stipulating that they don't want to pay a lot of money right Uh, which is always funny because like yeah who's gonna post i I spare on next door somebody posting there i want the most expensive dude in the world right yeah well but but even more that it's like everybody everybody that i see that posts it's like they've never they must have never paid for housework in their life or something like that (laughs) Like, um, and so I see a lot of that and then I'll see random messages. Like, uh, there was a message the other day with a person saying that there, there were a pair of white rabbits in her yard and she mm-hmm. thinks they're pets and someone needs to come get them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'll get occasionally there was, there was one about three months ago that, that mentioned that there was a goat 
wandering around the neighborhood. And I'm just like, this is, I, I don't know what to make of all of this. Like yeah. we've got like a, like a petting zoo that doesn't have any walls <laughs> or something. It's crazy. Um, your dogs must love your neighborhood then. Um, oh God. <laughs> but yeah, I'm looking through mine and yeah, it's a lot of looking for repairmen talking about wanting green light internet. Um, right. Uh, all that kind of thing. It but is I don't know re- that that's something that journalists need to be looking at. Like that's no. the every every time something pops up on on social, I, I feel like this is a, a thread that's been going through the internet now for almost twenty years. It's like journalists need to be focusing on this, and it's like you know I, I look at it next door every day. There is nothing no. or very little that journalists need to be looking at on that service. No, it, it, it's it's this weird thing that we do in kind of media and journalism criticism you know i think and i think i would imagine it kind of has its roots two places one in the general kind of uh narrative of journalism missed the boat on the internet which we don't have time even when we don't have time constraints recording this podcast to get into um but i think that that there's always that kind of you know journalism didn't understand the internet and so we have to like get on top of this new fad so that we can save ourselves or whatever um but i also i also wonder how much there is um and this may sound weird so stick with me in the post 20 in this post 2016 election thing there there's this real push and and journalism and in journalism criticism to understand what journalism is missing and what journalists are missing and you know what are people really talking about what do they care about and this all kind of gets i think at this this notion of trying to understand you know the trump voter and why why somebody voted for him like i feel like so much of journalism and journalism criticism is still trying to come to grips with the question of why did people actually vote for this guy um and so i feel like when something like next door comes around and and you know and, and it's the hey you know get off it get off of twitter get off of your ivory tower you know and this is you know figure out what's really happening in your neighborhood and you know in in the journalism world there's this extra um uh idea of focusing local and like being hyper local as a business strategy um but then you actually look at it and yes it's a lot of missing cats and people looking for contractors what next door basically is it's a combination if you've never been on it get log on for your neighborhood because it's going to be fascinating in a way it's a combination of like facebook circa 2009 2010 coupled with the bulletin board at the entrance of your local grocery store so it's people looking for contractors it is missing cats um, all that stuff. And I feel like there's just this idea of we've got to look at, we've got to know what's going on in, in your local neighborhood. And it's just not, you know, and, and but. Well, I, I, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. And I think ultimately you, that's, that's where the intellectual push comes from. Unfortunately, it's wrong because <laughs> it's just, I did like the more I hear, oh, we need to, we need to tell the stories of the community or need to understand the community. It's like you actually look at the community and it's, it's as mundane as you can possibly get. And, right. and, um, you know, it's like there was this piece that I, I think it was, might have been a, th- a thread that I saw. I might have sent this to you, um, the other day on Twitter on, on, yes. on your DMs where, uh, it was that Solutions Journalism Network, where I'll, I'm just going to kind of quote through this. Journalists rightfully focus on trust, but what about news avoidance? What about news just depressing people? Uh, and it's this idea that, you know, by focusing on problems and what's, you know, the stuff going on in the community that's an issue and only focusing on that, you end up not really helping anybody out because people stop reading those things. And I think, like, if you're if you're if you're hanging on next door looking for 
material that's that's going to like give you insights into your community, you're probably not going to find it because right. if there's one thing I've learned from being on the internet now for a depressingly long <laughs> amount of time, like where I'm coming up on 30 years between like CompuServe and the early web and then all the stuff in the 2000s, it's that what what animates somebody to post something online is by no means representative of what there is going on in their lives or what's going on in the lives of the people that surround them. It's a really weird phenomenon. It's not a one-to-one thing where it's like, here's my life in, in, in the physical plane and here's my life on the internet and they're the same. It just, it doesn't work that way. Right. Now I do think if you're like a, a newspaper reporter or a journalist covering a community, yeah, subscribe to the next door. You know, you're not going to, not for well, like these grand insights, like New York times diner story type style, but you know, you go there and like 99.8% of it is going to be people looking for contractors and missing and, and, and wandering goats apparently. But you know, you know, you, but that, but you keep an eye on it just to see like does anything are there trends bubbling up is there anything not expecting it but in the same way like you know it's kind of kind of part of working a beat in a way i did find this the the that thread you sent me uh but from the solutions journalism network uh very interesting and it was based on a neiman lab piece uh that uh josh benton wrote and the the uh and the, the general idea was people are avoiding the news, yeah, because it's too negative. Um, but I think there's there's more to it, um, and it's a mental health issue. And you know, I've seen this in my own life. You know, my wife has cut back dramatically on her news uh, her news consumption. A buddy of mine I went to a concert with last night was just saying how like he had the he's taken he takes breaks from news on it, and you know. And, and, and it was it's a weird kind of thing to think about because like baked into journalism and news is this idea of, you know, covering what's happening. And if things are negative happening, you cover them. You know, that's basic, basic news value. Plane lands safely after routine flight is not a news story. So, you know, you're not going to write about it. Um, but I but, you know, and, and look. All of this, I think, is colored by Trump and the Trump administration. Like, you just have to take, like, people have to take, feel like they have to take a break on it. And, you know, is there something to the solutions-based journalism of what you can do on top of just always covering the negative? Yeah, probably. But I don't know. It just, it it seems like a problem without a solution. Like, people Mm. want to avoid the news for a little bit. Okay. I don't know. I I don't know if I agree with you. Okay. Uh, And I'll, I'll, let me take it from an opposite perspective, which is that I think the problem is that stories that this is, this is the downside of the unlimited space model. And it's also the downside of the, of the, of, you know, internet access to news where every news outlet is trying to find a way to consistently capture and retain an audience. And I think that, um, you know, the idea that people weren't allergic to news, didn't find it too negative 30 years ago, but are finding it that way now, that doesn't mean that there's more bad things going on in the world now than there were 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think what it means is there's more space to fill and there's more economic incentive for uh, for newspapers, for, for news organizations, for journalists and for editors to try to find stories that are negative and then beat them into the ground. I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and I, so I think whereas one story might've sufficed five or six stories are, are published now. And what it creates is this, 
you know, the, certainly those stories do get more clicks than, uh, you know, than stories that are more mundane or more localized. But what you end up doing, I think, is, uh, you know, basically jacking up the the idea that that everything is bad, everybody's bad, every like every government official is in some way corrupt. There, it it, inc- it severely increases the amount of cynicism in the you know, in, in the, in the overall, in, you know, structures of society. And, and so it ends up having this, this almost inescapable gravitational pull. And I don't know, I, I think, you know, journalists do an important role in this country and, and have for a long time, but I think that role can be overdone when like there's a, there's a threshold for what actually qualifies as coverage, not so much news, but coverage. And there's really nobody governing like when, like when the coverage is too much at this point, it feels like it's all just like, well, we gotta, we gotta have stories out there. We gotta have more stories than the opposition. We've got to make sure that we're constantly zapping the audience and making them pay attention. No, I, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And, you know, you add to this, the growth of, uh, uh, da, 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 mobile. And like, there's, I, I feel like a lot of the mental health and the news, like the, the news making me feel bad idea i think there's a a big part of that is not just the the tone and tenor of the stories and what's being covered certainly you're absolutely right with um the negative stories kind of getting beaten to the ground and pushed on it but i think that you know anybody who's kind of on the internet or have a mobile device of some you know at, at all i think that there's a certain sense of not just uh negative news and constant negative news but the unav the you can't avoid it ness of it i feel like it's news has become so ambient uh and so pervasive um and i I, in a way i and i think that there's there there's it's harder to find spaces uh i I, i'm speaking more of myself probably and you know the circles i travel in but it's a lot harder to find spaces where you're not be feeling inundated by news, whether you are or not, I think is, I don't know if I want to say irrelevant or not, but there's that feeling of there's this news is all over the place and it's all, you know, bad or it's all anger making or it's, let me, let me chip in on this. Yeah. And then let's move on. I think, I think you're onto something, but I think you hit her upon an important point that gets lost in this a lot, which is you're talking about yourself you're talking about your friends who are all or most probably pretty tuned in to what's going on news wise. I'm assuming you have journalist friends or former journalist friends or, or people that are at least politically engaged. And mm-hmm. I think what you notice, the people, the, the, the civilians and the journalists that are on Twitter, they are exposed to a lot all the time. And there's a lot of people who are frankly, it, it's almost, have you, have you heard of, concept of like disaster porn or yeah. or not not disaster porn um i uh like a it's it's actually apocalypse porn like this idea okay. people people seem to be getting addicted to loading up on emotionally charged stories of how the world is going to come to a close mm-hmm. um you know like global i mean you know like climate change and global warming has become one where you just you see people flagellating themselves on Twitter every time a story pops up. You you see it with um, you see it with stories regarding 
um, a whole bunch of other societal ills. And what's interesting to me is if you go back and you look at this, the history of society, like this is something that's that's been fairly consistent over time. I mean, going all the way back to the Dark Ages, where like there were large sections of Europe that were convinced that the world was going to end in the year 1000 mm-hmm. A.D. And and people actually, you know, as, as they got closer, there were people that were actually like hoping that that would happen because, you know, they had convinced themselves that the life that they were living in and the society they were living in was so terrible. Now, granted, living in the Dark Ages was pretty bad, but um, my, my point is there's a psychological phenomenon that we've seen over the, the course of human history where people will get themselves, um, I guess, overhyped on negativity and that doesn't mean that there aren't bad things going on. This is where I have to be kind of careful when I describe this. But it does mean that just because there are bad things going on doesn't mean society's ending, doesn't mean that everything is terrible around you. Uh, but Twitter creates an environment where you can just constantly have that stuff wash over you all mm-hmm. the time. And, and I think what it does is it creates a psychological phenomenon where you – can convince yourself that the world has gone completely down the tubes and there's nothing that can fix it. And you mentioned the Trump thing that certainly plays into it. Um, but it's, it's like even the reaction to Trump, it's like every single thing is the worst thing ever, every day, every, every action, everything. And it's like, as much as I'm not a fan of Trump and, and not a fan of, of what's gone on in his administration, it's like, at some point, I have think I look around and I'm like, people gotta like just take a step back and take a deep breath here because the 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 hyperventilation about everything is just not healthy societally, and it's certainly not healthy on an individual psychological basis. Right, and I, I'm a word of warning to listeners: do not Google apocalypse porn. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really bad mistake, and I closed that tab so quickly. I I. Um, I forget what the actual term is, but that's you, you more or less get the idea of what I'm talking about. Oh, no, that's that was a whole other world that opened up when you Google apocalypse porn. So wow. just trust me on that and don't never Google anything. Folks. That's I good, think that's is actually good. the real lesson here. That's 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 a good point. Galen, can you tell me about some time a time in your life when somebody doubted you? Oh, my God. OK, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, yeah, I could. I could tell you a whole bunch of them, like, you know, the the time that I. I didn't get rehired for the baseball broadcasting job that I had that I was only making $40 a game on and then had to go live in my parents' basement for six months. <laughs> um, you know, there was, I mean, there was the time that, you know, the team that I was working for went bankrupt and I ended up like basically jobless 12 hours from home. There was, there've been a lot of times where I would, I would classify those as doubt the, the entire dissertation process. <laughs> um, but so what Brian is referring to, there was this piece. Uh, was it uh, was it a Richard Deitch piece? Could it, it have been abs- anything was, other than a Richard no, Deitch piece? Of course, it's not anything but a Richard Deitch piece. So where you know where he had uh, a group of uh, of sports broadcasters talk about no twenty five sports media figures about people who had once doubted them and the roadblocks they faced. And I I sent this to you. And my message was, not sure my eyes could have rolled any further into my head than when mm-hmm. I saw this story. And your response was, I didn't even bother clicking on it. I look here. I, 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 and look, I have since clicked on it. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Um, I, I'm the way I look at it is this. I understand. Look, if, if any any business, I think any business you're going to have moments of self-doubt, moments where people say, oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. But it's become this weird thing 
from my perspective, I think it's weird. I, I'm just speaking for myself where it's people, people want to be, as you mentioned, everybody wants to be Michael Jordan. Everybody wants to be able to say, I got to the top of the mountain and there were people doubting me along the way. And it's like, that's called society. <laughs> like, that's, like, of course that happens. Like, like, do you expect, do you really expect everybody along the way to give you a pat on the butt and say, Hey, you're doing a great job. Everything's going to go great. It's just, just, and a lot of the time, it's not even particularly in the in the media world. Um, you know, you're not even you're not talking about like insurmountable obstacles you have to overcome. You're talking about just the weird process of the business and and you know what it takes to get through it. I mean, everybody has to do that. And I don't know the idea that we're going to sit there and have people recount, you know, the, the 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 things that they felt like they had to overcome. It's like. As much as I try to communicate positivity to my students and be like, look, your first years in the business are going to be rough, I, it just it almost feels like, you know, spiking the football against an opponent who's not actually there. Right. So and this came from like somebody had posted a Twitter thread. It was digga, 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 digga. Frederick Joseph, who tweeted out, name a time you prove someone wrong who doubted you be as petty as you like. And it kind of went viral a couple weeks ago. And that was the, 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 uh, writes that that was the idea behind it. And a couple things on it. Like, I mean, you said it very well. Like, people are, you're always going to have people who air quote doubt you. And I always find that funny because it's kind of like the Michael Jordan model of inventing slights. Right. Um, and look, and, and, and look, I don't doubt that people can be fueled by this, but I have always find it funny as I'm looking at this to see Peter King writing about a time when somebody doubted yeah. him. Um, I don't need to see stories about white, rich white dudes proving somebody wrong when they were doubted. Women in the business, minorities in the business, people with disabilities. Like, sure, I can see that very, I can see value in that, um, in, in those stories. Um, but like Peter King and Adam Schefter writing about when they were doubted, like, no, stop, no, yeah. stop. But also, and, and like, and Bomani Jones had, had said this on, on Twitter, which kind of got me thinking on it too. Like, I understand the story and I understand it's a sports thing. And it's this weird thing that we were talking about, too, where it feels like in so many ways, sports journalists cop the attitudes and the origin stories and like the attitude and, and all those of the athletes they cover. So sports journalism kind of becomes like sports in that way. Um, but like, I don't know, like I, I, I'm, and I'm just going to be Pollyanna Brian's happy hour here. But like, why not have a story where you where these 25 incredibly powerful people in, in sports media, incredibly successful, recount a time when somebody supported them or helped them or kind of gave them a boost or something like that, rather than being th this petty. Nobody thought I could do it, and now I can do it. And like, in, I don't know. It just it, it no, strikes I, me as this weird, like, yeah, I love your idea—the spiking of football against somebody who doesn't remember doing that 25 years ago. I, I agree with you, and I, look, I'll even say this, and you know. I, I, take this in the spirit it's intended everybody i think a problem from my perspective in how particularly in the media business i the message and actually and frankly in academia as well the messaging that i see on twitter it's always you, you know it's you against the world uh, except except for this small group of support people who yes. are here to help you against the mean old world and i think that that is psychologically damaging to people i think when you when you for young people coming into the business, when you present to them a reality 
that's not really a reality, but a projected reality that says, you know, no one's going to help you and people are going to doubt you every step of the way and, and this and that. And it's like, I think that creates a, a mentality amongst people of, of all races and genders and, 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 uh, and every other, uh, I guess, separating d- item that you want to throw in there of, I can't do this on my own. There, I, it's going to be an insurmountable environment for me to go into. And I just don't think that's true. Right. I, I think, I think that, I think that there are certainly going to be moments with particular people where there are obstacles that are hard to overcome. That's, that's life though. And right. that's like to, to put that sort of messaging in and around the business and say, well, this is how it's going to be for everybody going in. I just think that that's, that's harmful. And I think what you said is, is right. It's like, there's actually a lot of people. I tell my students this all the time, you know, here's our alums. And if you'd like to talk to one of them, let me know and I'll get you in touch with them. And they would love to talk to you. And I'd say 95% of them don't believe it because I think in part, because they've been told up to this point that it's a mean old world and nobody right. wants to help you in it. And nobody's going to believe in you and you got to do and, and like there are a lot of people who believe in you or want to listen to you or help you out. And yeah, yeah it, so anyway, uh, last thing we'll get to today before we wrap up uh, was something that um, <laughs> you said you had thoughts on this, uh, this TNW graphic. The, oh, uh, yes. The, so for those of you who haven't seen this, uh, Chris Madrin. Uh, had had retweeted this. I don't know if he was the originator of it, but it was a basically a, a a video, graphic video that highlighted the the uh, the rise and fall of certain social media right. outlets from an active user perspective over the course of like a fifteen year period of time. Oh, and uh, people were captivated by it. It's got like fifteen hundred uh-huh. retweets on it. What did you find interesting about this piece? So I, I have to be careful because I clicked on it and then it started playing and the background music was going on it. So that's great um, background music. It's, it's very dramatic background music. I think it's the social network music. Um, I always find so a couple things. One, I I'm always flabbergasted at how low Twitter comes in on these and yeah, how like it's so way, insignificant. It's so insignificant and and we in the media and I'm as guilty of this as anybody treat it so much more than it is. You know, obviously the dominance of Facebook. Um I guess one of, you know, and, and a couple of thoughts like a lot of these the the bigger players are the Chinese uh message boards or Chinese services that of course have huge numbers. I don't know like I guess with YouTube and like these messaging apps, I don't know if I consider them social networks. You know, I guess that's an age old question. Like, is YouTube a social network? And I've never thought so. You know, like YouTube's a publishing, uh, blah, blah, publishing platform that allows for comments and sharing and stuff like that, but it's not built around, you know, you having a network and interacting with it. Um, well, and so I, 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 I think we probably disagree on that. Um, and that's yeah. fine. Um, I, I don't know. I don't I, know I, that we disagree on that, but anyway, okay. go ahead. But no, I, I think that was, that was, that was just part of it is like looking at, you know, co- considering YouTube as a social network was, um, hang on, I got the picture up because I don't want it to play on me. Um, I mean, in 2008, like basically monthly active users, Facebook has 2.23 billion. Right. According to this chart, YouTube has 1.9 billion. Instagram has a billion. WeChat has a billion. And then, you know, from there, like, you know, Tumblr, which doesn't exist anymore. Does. Uh, was, does Tumblr still exist? I yeah. thought they oh, shut yeah. it down. Oh, no, it's, Tum- it's, no, Tumblr still exists. Okay, well, it's, I think it won't exist much longer. How about that? But it's at 624 sure. million. TikTok's at 500 million. TikTok's kind of like 
Vine for the 2020s. I would yes. be it basically, yeah. Weibo is at 431. That's one of that's the Chinese. Something. I think it's the yeah. Chinese. I think it's the Chinese Twitter. I think Renren is the mm-hmm. Chinese Facebook, but I might have those back uh, reversed. Google Plus, which doesn't really exist, is on there. Reddit's at 355 million, and then Twitter's at 335 million, and that's yeah. the list. And so, um, look, I think. So I'm I'm writing a book right now on social media and sports, and it's interesting because I've been going back and forth in, intellectually on this idea of whether YouTube counts as a social network or not. And I've I've asked people on Twitter, and I've gotten like categorically opposite responses. I've had people say, "Well, you can do everything on YouTube that you can do on any other social network," and it's at the at its core, it's built around creating content and sharing it with other people. And then I've had other people say, no, it's just a distribution channel for content. And all the sharing realistically goes on elsewhere. And then people come back and say, well, no, it was comments on, on YouTube. So um, I don't know what to say exactly. It's um, It certainly has a lot of elements of, of social media in it. Mm-hmm. And I think th- one of the things, and, I, and maybe this is, I guess, a, a preview of the book, uh, you know, one of the things that I think we're seeing is YouTube is becoming incredible. It's it's more of a social network than, say, Netflix is. Sure. And in terms of video distribution, it's probably, it's certainly more important than Netflix among young people because young people are using YouTube for everything, including using YouTube to supplant movies and television mm-hmm. as their primary method of, of content consumption. And I think it's interesting because, Lawnmower Guy's back, by the way. Um <laughs> Um, because if you think about the social networks that are out there, you know, Facebook's got all these global users and yet Facebook, I think they're the, the number of monthly users who are 18 and under who use Facebook has dropped below 50% now. Right. Um, uh, the number of 18 year olds who use Facebook, I, I don't want to like just it's the, the youth numbers have dropped off precipitously. Right. Um, you know, no one uses Twitter except for journalists and woke people. Um, and then, you know, so basically you could make an argument that, you know, when you, when you look at the fact that Snapchat's kind of dying away as well, you could make an argument that of all of the social networks that we think of as social networks, the only one that really matters right now is Instagram. I would agree with that. Yeah. Which is, which is pretty close to YouTube when you get right down to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so oh, it's, Sorry. What's the matter? Oh, I, oh I, I I hit play on the video and it started playing the dramatic music again. So that's fine. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think I think this kind of narration oh, deserves dramatic. And, music. and look at and look at friends. They're going 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 gone. Uh, I know. It's uh, so anyway. I look at it all and I say to myself, I think we probably need to reconstruct our ideas of what a social network is because <laughs> as we go into the 2020s. If we're not using if if the if young people aren't using Facebook, that means that soon twenty somethings will not be using Facebook. Right. Um, if we're not using Snapchat, if we're not really using Twitter except to have journalists talk to each other, uh, and if all we're doing is sending pictures and, and videos back and forth on Instagram, then the whole idea of a social like the the, the concept of social media isn't necessarily reliant on the networks anymore. As much as it is reliant on the multiplicity of interactive options that are available to a person when they turn their phone on in the morning. 
Hmm. That's a, that's an interesting way to think about it. I mean, you're, you're obviously well more schooled and thought about this a lot more than I have. But one thing just I've noticed kind of anecdotally with my students and using the, the platforms is how much, you know, Instagram has grown in importance and the Instagram story. I think that was the killer feature for them and how many and how popular those are. And I get the feeling that, that, uh, there's a growing use pattern on Instagram that I'm seeing where you post, like, like you post a picture proper to your account rarely, but you're updating your story a lot more and using that as your primary use pattern for it. And that's interesting on so many levels because obviously that's not permanent. That disappears after 24 hours. It's like, it's like Snapchat disappears after 24 hours. And, um, you don't have the, the like and the comment capabilities, the public liking, the public li- commenting on it that you do on that. So I, I, I really do find Instagram as just an incredibly interesting platform and the way that, uh, our students are using it and younger people are using it. You know, I think what we're seeing too with social media is the question I always had was, you know, it's been for years that like, you know, kids didn't use Facebook. And the question I always had was, do they not use Facebook? But then as they get in their mid twenties and thirties and kind of age into, you know, adulthood, are they going to start using Facebook then? Is it kind of like, and they're not, no, you're absolutely right. They are not. It's they, they, well, and it's weird because they, they might be active users and that they log in like once a week or once a month, but they're not actively using it and posting on it. It's just kind of like a thing that they have that they use for logins or check-ins. And I find that that that's a really interesting data point, I think. Once the kids stop using a network, it loses its social importance. Right. I mean, like, if you think about it, like, why did MySpace effectively die? It didn't effectively die um, right away, but it effectively died over time. And it did so because as young people stopped using it, other young people stopped using it. Because the only reason young people were using it in the first place was to connect with the other young people. Right. And same thing with Twitter. I mean, you know, the the uh, Twitter is like, you know, a a sheer rocky cliff facing an ocean. And Mm -hmm. in order to actively and effectively use Twitter, you have to come ashore, climb over these slippery rocks and avoid getting killed by the surf so that you can eventually climb up and then look down at all of the people that have died trying to climb up the cliff. I mean, that's like it is such a tough process to actually get something positive out of Twitter. Mm-hmm. I, and, and, you know, I, so I look at it and then I look at Snapchat and how Instagram basically cut Snapchat's heart out and set it afire. <laughs> it really did. You know, with the stories thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, this is kind of a natural consolidation effect that I think is interesting. Um, and, and it's something that, again, I just think that as we move forward, you're not going to see kids jumping onto Facebook. And, mm-hmm. and once people stop doing that's where that's why Facebook's been making all these inroads with Instagram, because they're at least keeping young people in their network infrastructure by having right. them use Instagram. But that's all that they're doing. They're not crossing over to Facebook. Facebook is about to become um, the retirement home is a bit too much, but it's about to become the YMCA Oh, okay. Of uh, of of you know social networks where it's like no one under the age of thirty works out at the YMCA, right? And that's basically what Facebook is going to become. Um, last thing, real quick, uh, and I sent this to you in the chat. Yes, there's an article that was written in ProMarket by uh, this guy. Uh, not this guy. This it was uh, it was actually Sally Hubbard. My mistake. Sally Hubbard. Um, former antitrust enforcer who makes an argument 
that um, the, the, the basically the thesis statement is as follows. Weak antitrust enforcement set the stage for Facebook and Google to extract the fruits of publishers' labor. We won't be able to save journalism and solve our disinformation problem unless we weaken monopolies' power. And the piece basically goes on to say that Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple engaged in anti-competitive practices and that publishers, quote, never had a fair shot, nor do they have bargaining power against the platforms. The platforms can cut them off with a simple tweak of an algorithm. Facebook and Google exploit their middlemen positions to divert ad, ad revenue away from publishers and into their own pockets while they also play the game of publishing ads. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. You maybe didn't see this piece earlier, but what do you? What are your thoughts on this? I, I'm just. I, I hadn't seen it, and so I'm reading it as you as you wrote it. We um, do a lot of homework on the flip we, side. We, we, preparation so. is our key. Um, so I, I will say I have. I am very uneducated in the area of antitrust law. So um, she, uh, Sally Hubbard, is obviously way smarter about me and knows way more about antitrust law. Don't sell yourself so short, Brian. Come on. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I'm bad at monopoly. It's everything. Like, like this is not, this is not, uh, not my forte. Um, I, you know, what's interesting. This is a very. I, I, let me I'm, let me I'm, give you, let me let me give you a second to get your thoughts together. Yeah. I want to say this. This to me seems like the publisher's version of the. Uh, talk about somebody who doubted you uh, <laughs> phenomenon. It, it just it, it constantly feels like in this era, it's like it wasn't your fault. Things didn't work out right. There was a bad person right. who kept you from doing what you needed to do. And it's like I get the argument that, you know, the the, the fair playing surface thing. But it's like Craigslist, like Craigslist wasn't some monopolistic power that came in and unfairly took ad revenue away from newspapers. Craigslist just came in and said, Hey, you want to sell your Jeep? Don't pay the newspaper to do it. Just post it for free on Craigslist. Right. And, and the newspapers had no answer for that. Like the, and, and while I'm, I'm sure that there are some, and, and I, and I will say a hundred percent that, that Google and Facebook and, and certainly Amazon, I don't know about Apple, but that they have engaged in some significantly disgusting antitrust violations, but they've been allowed to do that by the government. The idea that it's their fault that news publishers didn't figure out how to use the internet, I think that's going a bit too far. It is. I, I agree with that. This is like a very pro newspaper publisher stand, uh, point of view. Like I imagine this is going to start leaking into my Twitter feed with people saying, uh, my journalist friends, you know, applauding this and, and, and saying that it also, See, we, we could, we, we couldn't have done anything anyway. Exactly. Go anyway. Yeah. 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 No, it, that's exactly right. And you know, it's kind of tapping into this, um, uh, and it always comes back to Trump, but it, it does kind of tap into this thing about should social networks, should Facebook be, uh, uh regulated on this, um, and, and all these conversations. And, you know, yeah, I, 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 I just, I think you're right. There's this always looking, the newspaper industry collectively is always looking for how was this not our fault? Um, and you know what? It's not anybody's fault, not even the newspaper industries. Like this was, you know, the, the, the world changed and worlds change and, and, and economies change. Could the newspaper industry have done a better job? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, there, there's always this look for, you know, this, this, this kind of strikes me now as the, the, the 2019 version of we should have, we, we shouldn't have given away our content for free when we started the internet. And if we hadn't done that, we, you know, we would have been fine. And, you know, that argument's kind of faded away a little bit. Um, but this is striking me as that, like, see, 
if X hadn't happened, we would be fine. And that just ignores all of the greater economic shifts and cultural shifts and and everything that's happened in this digital age in the last 20 years. And again, it kind of takes it, it conveniently takes the newspaper publishing industry off the hook for you know, see, there, 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 there's the silver. It's kind of like the 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 newspaper silver bullet theory, right? Right. The, if this one thing had been different, we would be fine. If Google hadn't, if Google and Facebook hadn't taken all of our ad revenue, we would have been good. As if the ad revenue in the newspaper industry was doing just what fine before 2006. Like this was an issue in the, in 1998 when we were coming up and just kind of getting out of college, and like like. Yeah, so it's this idea that, you know, we were finding the boogeyman when there really is no boogeyman. It's just the world changed and we, and your industry wasn't built for the world that we currently have. Yeah. Anyway, that'll wrap it up for this time around. If you've got comments or questions at BP Moritz at Dr. GC, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'll be back before the 4th of July. I'm not exactly sure when. Okay. But uh, we'll do a pre IAMCR. Uh, version of this before I jet off to Spain oh, for a excellent. few days. Yeah, that'll, yeah, I'm gonna try to try to try to represent the flip side well Very in, good. Uh, in in the country of Spain. But uh, anyway, any final thoughts before we go? No, but now that you're going to Spain, I feel like we should have swag that you could wear to fully represent the flip side in in Spain. If you'd like to pay for T-shirts, uh, uh, please let us know, and we will place an order and and get and like, bill you. Yes. We'll bill you. Yeah, we'll we'll send it to you COD, and then you'll send it back to us so that we can wear the shirts. But uh, perfect. Anyway, uh, for Brian Moritz, I'm Galen Clavio. This is the flip side. We'll catch you on the flip side. So long, everybody. <laughs>